Welcome to the STEMness Podcast, a podcast produced at the Cohen College of Engineering at the University of Houston, aimed at celebrating trailblazing women in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. You will hear industry leaders, engineering researchers, and female faculty members at the Cullen College talk about their journeys in STEM and how their work impacts the next generation of female STEMinists. I'm Michelle Patrick Kruger. I'm a PhD student in electrical engineering, and I'm one of your hosts for the STEMinist podcast. Thank you for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, this is Michelle Patrick Kruger with STEMinist. Today, I have Marianne Dyson. She graduated with physics degree in the 1970s and then went on to become one of the first female flight controllers with the early shuttle missions at NASA. So Marianne, tell us a bit about your journey. How did you choose physics? Well, I was inspired by the stars as a young girl and also by the Apollo program and especially Apollo 8, which occurred during middle school for me. And there were no women astronauts back then, but I was pretty sure there would be eventually because I was watching Star Trek and Nichelle Nichols, who played uh, Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, was on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And I said, yes, that's the job I want. And people do see that that's going to happen someday. So I, I started looking at what I would have to do to prepare myself for that opportunity when it came along. And I knew education would be the key. And so I, I worked hard on my math and, and science classes, although there weren't that many offered back then <laughs> to, to women. And, um, and then I uh, went to college at University of North Carolina in Greensboro and um, enrolled in, well, first I went to Ohio University my freshman year. And I took an astronomy class there and my uh, astronomy professor uh, said, if you, if you want to be an astronomer, you need to major in physics. I said, oh, and I hadn't taken a physics course at all in my life. So when I transferred to University of North Carolina, I signed up to be a physics major without ever having taken a physics course. <laughs> and, uh, and so as you could expect, it didn't go all that well. Um, and so I got a, a C in my first physics class and the head of the department pulled me aside and he said, <clears throat> you know, if you want to major in physics, a C is not gonna cut it. And he said, so what can I do to help? And I said, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I seem to be having trouble following the examples um, given in the textbooks. You know, they were all geared towards men. Um, there were examples from car engines. I've never even lifted the hood of the car because that was not something women did back then. And he said, you need hands-on. Uh, experience. That's what you need. I need to get you in the lab. And so he um, he, he actually got me a part-time job um, working with what, what we called bubble chamber <laughs> images and uh, diagnosing the images. And and also I worked in the optics lab. And he said, why don't you join the, the local astronomy club? And, um, and I can help you. Uh, and we built a telescope. So we ground out the lens and we built a telescope and we we founded a chapter of the Society of uh, Physics Students at University of North Carolina Greensboro. It was the first time we did that, and uh, that hands-on experience really made the difference to me. And I learned that uh, a lot of people have have trouble learning straight from a book or a lecture. That actually doing experiments and looking through the telescope and seeing how it's applied can make all the difference. And so. Uh, 
that's how I got through that part. And, uh, and then I applied to um, graduate school in space physics at Rice University. And uh, when I arrived there, I was, I was not the only woman. There was one other woman in the, uh, in the department. Um, but I discovered that I didn't have the right background, that uh, I was missing a lot of prerequisites. So some of them had been offered at University of North Carolina, but I, I hadn't taken them all because I had to work. I didn't have any money for school. That was a constant problem for me back then. Um, I think it's a problem that a lot of students have. That financial issues are one of the biggest barriers to, to earning a degree in physics or anything. And, um, and the, the part-time jobs I could find back then, you know, they paid $2 an hour. <laughs> I worked at the grocery store, at the drugstore. Uh, I, I tutored uh, students as I um, got more advanced in my in my coursework and um, you know I cobbled it together but thankfully I qualified for a scholarship at Rice and and um, so but it wasn't it didn't pay very much I, I, but it was enough and it got me through and uh, I, I think that there's more opportunities today for for women to uh, earn those um, internships, uh, scholarships, there's a lot more of them out there uh, that they can apply for and I'd certainly encourage women who are having financial difficulties to, to look into scholarships and internships, uh, especially uh, NASA has uh, internships every summer and, um, and then there's co-op programs where you can work a semester and then go to school a semester and uh, a lot of the aerospace companies also offer internships. Nice. Well, you mentioned some of the challenges that you faced earning your degree with financials and all of that. Um, what other challenges did you have as you were going through your education? Um, well, when I, I was the only woman in most of my classes and I was somewhat intimidated, um, like a lot of people are in a different situation than what they're used to from their family and their background. Um, I was afraid to ask questions and look stupid, uh, basically, and uh, so I would I would timidly raise my hand and say, um, "Could you explain that again, um, or whatever?" And my professors were, were very good about doing that, but oftentimes I would just go after class and and ask. But I discovered that a lot of my fellow students were also having the same issues, and they said, oh, "I'm so glad you asked that question because I was having the same thing." and and especially some of the, the guys in my classes, they they were also afraid to look stupid. <laughs> so um, I think that, that just get out there, get over it, and go ahead and ask your questions. Uh, that was one of the things that I, I struggled with. And I and I and by the time I got to grad school, I was raising my hand every time, five minutes, and, and it got to be a joke. It's like, well, I don't need to ask that question because Marianne's going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... You worked in flight controller, and like, tell me what flight controllers are at NASA. Um, well, a flight control, a mission control is a team, and there's about 20 different console positions. So depending on your background, you may be more qualified for uh, one or the other. There's like a console that's basically life sciences. And there's electrical, um, and, and with the physics background, I sort of had a little bit of everything. Um, and I ended up in um, flight activities, which was in charge of the uh, attitude and pointing for the shuttle. 
uh, that's you know, how it was oriented in space. And uh, also, we were in charge of everything the crew did. So I got to tell the crew where to go <laughs> and when. <laughs> so what would a typical day be look like for you, um, with both on and off console? And so you can explain what on console, off console is, but what would, what would it look like either one of those? Well, I, I started with NASA before the first space shuttle flight. Um, I, I started in January of 1979, and I'd previously worked for a computer company um, after graduate school. I, anyway, <laughs> so I, I started in flight activities. We were preparing the procedures that the crew would follow on this first space shuttle flight. And specifically, I was assigned to write contingency procedures. So what if this failed, what would we do? And what would the crew do and how could we get back to a safe situation? And, and that was a lot of fun, especially for someone who likes to write stories because asking what if questions and then following it through is, is what writers do and what I still do uh, when I write science fiction especially. But, um, so we would then take the procedures that we drafted and we would go over to the simulators or the mock-ups and we would walk through them, make sure that we didn't have the crew bouncing from one console to another, that they did all the things they could do in one place at a time to save time. And, um, and then we'd go through the sequence and then we'd, then we'd bring the, uh, some astronauts in and have them run through it and they would say, oh, this, this line here didn't make sense to me, I think you need this and um, could be done in a more optimal way. And we would, we would fix that up and then we would test it with the whole team. So we'd have the astronauts in the simulator doing the procedure and we would have the flight controllers at their console looking at the data and, and, and then they would come back and say, well, we switched here to Waterloop 2, but what we really needed to do was this instead. And, and so we would work out the procedures and then we would um, put them in the books and the, they were actual physical books back then. And, the crew would then take those into space. And so if we had that problem, they would turn to those procedures and say, all right, I need to shut this off and turn this on, look for this talk back and make sure um, I'm back to a safe situation. Because the job of mission control is to keep the crew safe and to accomplish the mission objectives, whatever those happen to be for that flight. And, and so we, we trained really hard and we tried all kinds of crazy procedures because as the flights kept getting delayed, we had worked out all of the easy quote-unquote cases and so we got down to the basket cases which um, one of them was the the loss of the cooling system and that was one that I had to do and we we actually weren't sure you could survive that case because without cooling the computers quit working and you can't fly the space shuttle without computers and so the the goal in that case was to turn everything off as fast as you could and then get to the ground because you only had about 30 minutes before they would overheat, flood, and everything would stop working. Um, but we, we, we came up with some procedures to extend their time and um, we put them in the book. Thank God we never had to use them. <laughs> it's pretty, uh, pretty dicey and a little scary there to think about all of those things and have to, have to work through them, but it's good to do that so you know how to address them and it's not a surprise. Well, so, um, so you've worked on a lot of shuttle missions. What what missions are especially memorable? Are there any in particular that stand well, out? Well, 
I was there for the first space shuttle launch, which was pretty memorable, obviously. Um, and we had a wave off on the first launch attempt. That means we aborted the, the launch attempt. Um, and it was a computer thing, which computers were still very new in 1981. <laughs> and so we all kind of uh, were pretty sure that if we had a problem, it was going to have something to do with the computers. And, um, so, uh, but we waved off and they figured out what, what caused the problem. And, and then we rescheduled the launch a few days later. And so I, I was on the Ascent team. We had three teams in Mission Control and we'd switch off. Ascent is the part, you know, we launch up through the first um, four hours of flight about was, was the, our team's responsibility. And then we would hand over to another team. And there was an orbit team and there was an entry team. Um, and sometimes the Ascent team would come in and, the, and we would work the planning shift at, at night. So we didn't just work the launch except for like the booster console, they would only work launch because they don't have a system the rest of the flight. Uh, so the first flight um, uh, was uh, John Young and Robert Cribben. And it went so smoothly, we were like, why were we worried about all these contingencies? Because everything just, we had a few hiccups. Uh, there was a, we were surprised when they opened the payload bay doors and the tiles were missing on the, on the, Ohm's pods in the back. They looked out the window and, uh-oh, if those are missing, what might be missing on the belly? And of course, we, we didn't have the arm on that flight, so we couldn't actually get a camera under there and look. Um, so we used some cameras from the ground, but we weren't supposed to know about that. <laughs> but but uh, we were assured that they didn't see any big problem, but we were still kind of biting our nails when they did the entry. So course that was very memorable everything worked out well but when we got back we had things to fix and we had to go back and redo the procedures uh, so that we could do an inspection look for, for tile damage um, and some a few things like that and and then uh, the, the second flight was in November of 1981 and um, that one really tested everything we had trained for everything we prepared for because during the ascent, uh, we had one thing after another that failed. It was just like the Sims. And even the, the crew even said, this feels like a Sim. And we were all like, yeah, unfortunately, yes, it does feel like a Sim. So we, we had an auxiliary power unit um, that failed. Uh, we, uh, we had the, I, the, the way we pointed the orbiter to tell where it was in space. Didn't, it wouldn't align properly. Um, we had problems with the communications. It was spotty, and we didn't have a tracking data relay satellite, so we could only talk to them when they were over ground sites. And we'd get this crackly, horrible uh, radio call, and you have to repeat everything six times, and we weren't really sure what was going on. We'd get a little burst of data, and we'd say, where are they in the timeline? And they were falling way behind because they were responding to all these alarms that were going off, on, uh, and they had... So we, we got into the first hour after flight and, um, and I was in charge of the procedures for what they call post-insertion, which is after ascent, um, before orbit, you have to reconfigure everything. And our, our poor little computers, they had little teeny weeny memories and they could only hold like, a, like one photo of today's. <laughs> so we had to actually load a whole new software package um, when we got to, to space because 
we didn't need all the equipment that we used for launch during orbit, and we needed some other equipment uh, software uh, for orbit, so we had to do this transition. And we were way behind on the timeline doing this transition, and there were all these questions. One of the, the cathode ray tubes, they call them CRTs, it's the screens that we had. Those that started failing, we had, we lost, uh, we actually lost two of them, and and um, so so the crew didn't even have their screens, so they were trying to follow the the contingency procedures, and they was telling them to use a screen they didn't have, and you know, and then the the worst problem was one of the fuel cells failed, and um, this there were three of these uh, on the space shuttle, and these provide the electrical power for the shuttle, um, and. If you, you have you have to have at least one to make it to the ground, and oh, I had written those procedures for what would happen if the fuel cells got flooded from the freon loop case, but in this case, the fuel cell itself failed, and and we didn't know why. It was only the second flight, and so we didn't know if it was a generic problem, and that the other two were about to fail, or if it was unique to this one fuel cell. And so all the managers got together and they started talking about we had to shorten the flight. It was supposed to be five days and they pretty quickly decided it had to be cut. And, and so suddenly we had all the test objectives that we were supposed to do over five days crammed into oh, basically one day because we had the launch day and then we were going to have the entry day. So it all got crammed into there. And I was flight activities, that's what we did. We had to make sure that anything that got scheduled didn't conflict with something else um, and that there was enough time to do it and something had to give. And so the crew just basically didn't sleep and they didn't eat. And so we, we really compromised their safety because of that. And President Reagan showed up. <laughs> in the middle of this uh, with, a, with a visit. And we, we were happy to see him because at that point people were saying in the media, oh, the space shuttle is a disaster. Look, it's, awful. it's only its second flight. And you're supposed to fly this thing a hundred times? Yeah, right, it's not gonna work. And, and they, were, they were just crucifying us in, in, the, uh, in the news. And so we wanted to show them that, hey, this is a shakedown flight. And, and so our, our flight director, um, called us on, this was uh, before Reagan got there. This was on, on the ASCENT team. We just had all these failures and, and we were trying to do the test, which was to the new arm that we had, the remote arm, and um, Dick Truly was gonna put it through its paces. And the camera failed and, and we couldn't see if this was the most important test for this flight and we couldn't see what we were doing because the camera, it was the color camera failed. We had a back, black and white camera as a backup, but that wasn't what we wanted. And so we discovered, and I was part of the discovery here because these were my procedures that they were following. They missed a, a plugging in a circuit breaker. That's all it was. It was there was a circuit breaker that they hadn't plugged in for that particular problem. And in the midst of solving the larger problems like the fuel cell and the uh, inertial measurement unit and things, they just had rushed through and missed one. So we figured this out and they went and pushed it in and voila, we had, uh, we had a color camera again. And, and um, so then we went, we lost the signal because they passed out of range. And our flight director, Neil Hutchinson, he got us on a loop and he said, 
He said, uh, listen up, people. Um, this is not a sim, and we can't afford to be sloppy. The crew are counting on us to have their back. And there's just no excuse for going for three hours and missing the fact that they didn't push in a circuit breaker. And so he said, we're going to give them some time. We're going to sit back. We're going to go back through the procedures and make sure we didn't miss anything else. And we're just going to you know, sit back and take a deep breath and, and do our jobs. And then he said, get back to work. So the INCO, who was in charge of the um, cameras, he could command these things from the ground. So we said, let's do that. And they'd offload the crew. And because uh, uh, one of the crew members still had his spacesuit on. He hadn't even had time to take it off. He hadn't had anything to eat. You know, so let them have a few minutes to catch their breath. And we just got the, and then we came over the uh, ground site. And here is this gorgeous color picture of the earth with, you know, with the Palo Bay. And, and we just, uh, seeing that, and this is an excerpt from my, uh, my memoir. It reminded us just what we were doing, testing a new spaceship. This was only our second shakedown crew, so to speak, and we were finding a few things we need to improve on later flights, including our own performance in mission control. But wow, what an amazing thing we were doing, hunched over our little black and white monitors, listening to discussions about temperature gradients and pressure values and navigation numbers. It was easy to get lost in the babble and forget. Those crackly voices we were hearing in our headsets were coming from outer space. The men we knew were zipping around the planet at 17,500 miles per hour watching 16 sunrises a day. So I just sat there for a moment with a silly smile on my face. And, and it's sometimes when we get in the midst of things, it could be if you're in college, you've got a test coming up and your car just broke down and the air conditioner's not working and, and your mom is yelling at you to come and do something for her, et cetera. You need to take a deep breath and say, hey, I'm getting a degree. I'm working on my degree. I'm going to have a better future for my family and myself and a better job because of this. I can do this. I just need to remember my training. I've prepared for these things. I have friends I can call on. I'm not alone. There's a whole team of people here. If I need some help, maybe I could call my neighbor and say, hey, could you give me a ride? Um, and I can worry about the car tomorrow. You know, I don't have to do that today. And so that's what we did. And so at that, that moment in time, I think our flight director, he was a really great leader. He made us stop and say, hey, what are you doing? How could you, you know, just, we got so involved in trying to do everything perfectly. We missed a simple thing. And, 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 and we needed to stop and take a deep breath and look back. And so that flight turned out great. The president came and his picture was on the cover of the newspaper the next day and we we did the entry we we fixed the stuff we replaced this the, the uh, crt in the cockpit um the crew did almost crash because they were they were so their health had been compromised but we learned a valuable lesson from that too um, and from then on we we said we will protect the crew's meals we make sure they get enough sleep we won't encroach on that. We'll have a priority list for our uh, activities so that we don't just try to jam everything in there. And um, so we, we learned a lot. It was a, it was a really fabulous test flight. Um, and and we, we learned a lot and we made it through and we landed and we cheered and we went out and welcomed that crew home. 
And, and there's just nothing like that. And I, I'm, I'm a little jealous of the people who are working on the uh, Artemis program right now because they're going to be doing those kinds of things. They're going to be finding out what, what we need to fix, how we can do it better, and they're going to get to greet that crew home and they're going to have that feeling of accomplishment that it was really uh, life-changing. That's very cool. <laughs> it's amazing to be a part of all of that. I mean, wow, it's just earth-shattering. Or shooting for the stars and getting there. Yeah. Uh, so actually, now you've shifted quite a bit from mission control to writing, although it sounds like maybe it's not as big a shift as I initially thought. So you're writing stories for what if this problem happens, but now you started off writing stories for children using your NASA experience. What was the inspiration for that? Well, um, I worked the first five uh, space shuttle flights for NASA and, and then I got pregnant with my first child. And I had planned to have the baby and go back to work. And I did do that, I, um, but I, I kept postponing my, my return because of childcare issues. I didn't have any family locally to support me. And at the time, there weren't very many options for childcare. Um, I, and I know childcare is the number one thing that women tell me they still have problems trying to be in a professional uh, position, and especially a job like mission control, which requires you to be on console at three o'clock in the morning. Who's gonna watch your baby at three o'clock in the morning? And my husband was a flight controller also. We, we were actually the first married couple in mission control, which is kind of cool. Um, and, and so I was like, I have, to, I have to find a different job. I don't think I can continue to do this. I tried uh, going back and it just wasn't gonna work. And there was also some other circumstances um, in my management as, and, and a lot of women run into this, the glass ceiling problem. Um, I, I would say generally women were, were welcomed uh, into NASA and we were, they were actively uh, hiring women at that point in time, even though I was the only woman on my team. Um, most of the time there was just one woman on each team, you know, uh, but uh, we all felt encouraged and there had been all these classes on working with women and so on and we kept saying that our main problem was childcare and, and they did eventually open up a childcare center at NASA um, but for me it was um, I, I didn't want to wean my baby uh, too early uh, but so I had to and then and when I came back to work he started having uh, health problems um, and and you know, I have to take him to the doctor and, he ha and I didn't have any more time off and it just, it just wasn't working. So um, I got a job, a part-time job with a contractor and, and that was really an ideal uh, situation for me. And I, I think some other women have found that that actually works pretty well. And we, there were no daycare centers back then, so we hired someone to come to the house um, to help while I was at work and then we gradually transitioned uh, to uh, a part-time uh, caregiver in the neighborhood, another woman who was staying home, and we, we basically time-shared. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and so, and women have been doing those things for, for centuries, right? We, we found a way. But, um, so that was the main reason why I, I left NASA, was to, uh, 
to take care of my children and I wanted to share the excitement of space with them and I went to the libraries and there just wasn't very much out there about space and it was all geared towards things in the distant past. Um, well, at that point in time, it seemed distant to me, but it was the Apollo program. I was still working with Apollo veterans, but um, I, I wanted there to be something about the space shuttle and, and about our time in space and, that, and the future we were building. At that point in time, we were hoping for human space settlements. That was supposed to be the goal of, of a future goal. We were gonna build colonies in space and uh, live on the moon and go to Mars. And this was the bright, exciting future that we had planned. And uh, they were thinking about building the space station. And then we had the Challenger accident. So I was working for uh, part-time and working with uh, on space lab programs. Um, we helped the uh, the Germans with their first space lab flight, and it was great fun. And I and I thought that I would just gradually go back to full time work, but I was going to be supporting the new commercial space industry. And all that ended with Challenger. Um, after Challenger, NASA pulled back from doing anything commercial. Um, they they stopped doing military. We we flew the military missions that they had uh, on schedule already, and then the military switched over to expendable rockets. And then the space shuttle was going to just be dedicated to building the space station, but we didn't have the funding, so that ended up getting. And then um, Soviet Union fell, and we ended up doing Mir program. And but there was still a lot of stuff going on, and I thought, well, hey, maybe I just need to explain these things to both children and adults. And I started writing uh, articles for journals and magazines, <clears throat> and then I did my first book about the space station, which was. Uh, still in work and they hadn't flown anything yet, but I went to the factories and got talked to the people building it. It was so exciting and um, that was my first book was Space Station Science and um, luckily it was very well received. I got a, an award from the Society of Children's Book Writers, so it's called The Golden Kite. And um, so then, and uh, I had met Buzz Aldrin through the um, National Space Society. He, he was involved with on the board of directors and I was a volunteer with them and I ran their conference here in 1999 <laughs> way back when and uh, so Buzz and I had known each other for a while and I did a book about uh, about the moon it was called Home on the Moon uh, my editor had left Scholastic and gone to National Geographic and I followed her over there and so I did that book with her and and then Buzz wanted to do a book about Mars and my editor knew that I had done this book about the moon and that I knew Buzz and she said do you want to do a book about Mars with Buzz and I'm like absolutely I want to do that <laughs> so uh, anyway uh, the question was originally about how I ended up writing for children and, and it was just uh, I felt like there was uh, room for for more books about um, space for children and it also gave me an opportunity to go and and speak to children in schools and I discovered that there were a lot of misconceptions about space out there. Uh, the biggest one being that there's no gravity in space. There is gravity in space! <laughs> there really is! <laughs> and, um, uh, the reason that you're weightless is because you're falling. And, and I'd be happy to go into that if you if you like. But um, anyway, that's how I got into uh, writing for children. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Steminist Podcast. 
Tune in next time where we'll be hearing from more amazing women in STEM. Want to listen to more podcast episodes? Check out our podcast website at www.egr.uh.edu to listen and subscribe today.